Jerry Ratcliffe here with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Dr. Renee Mitchell is a sergeant in the Sacramento Police Department, California, and a co-founder and current president of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. In our wide-ranging chat, we explore the myriad ways research can help 21st century policing. Find out more in this episode at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Hi, before I get to this episode, I'd like to quickly tell you about a three-day training program I'm facilitating in September 2019. From the 24th to the 26th, I'll be running a Police Commander's Crime Reduction course in beautiful downtown Philadelphia. This course is ideally suited to mid-level Police Command staff, and it's the only authorized training program accompanying the book Reducing Crime, a Companion for Police Leaders. Details can be found on the web at reducingcrime.com events. If you have had any involvement in evidence-based policing in the US, you will know of Renee Mitchell. Sergeant Dr. Mitchell, I think I have that in the right order, has served in the Sacramento Police Department for 21 years. Dr. Mitchell has been a Fulbright Police Research Fellow, is a co-founder of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing, a National Police Foundation Fellow, a BetterGov Fellow, a member of the George Mason Evidence-Based Policing Hall of Fame, and a visiting scholar at the University of Cambridge. Sergeant Mitchell holds multiple academic qualifications culminating in a PhD in criminology from the University of Cambridge. She recently co-edited a book with Dr. Laura Huey, Evidence-Based Policing, an Introduction. Active in knowledge transfer, Renee has two popular TEDx talks advocating for evidence-based policing. I caught up with her at the 2019 American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference in Cincinnati. I managed to pry the Society's president away for a few moments to talk about medicine, aviation, eminence-based policing, police-involved shootings, field training officers, and who was the first paid-up member of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. I'll give you a clue. It's a bloke with the perfect face for podcasts. What do you want me to say more stuff? <laughs> say more stuff. Say more stuff. I'll say more stuff. What it's like to run a conference. Jesus Christ, why did I get... Why did... If my life without Jim Beerman, I would have just been a fat, dumb, happy cop. Well, we all say the same thing about, you know, what would our life be without Jim Beerman? But he's been... I mean, he's, he started something, didn't he? Yeah, him and Larry Sherman and David Weisberg and... All those guys. Like, I kind of group you guys all together, but... And then he suckered you into... Running a conference. Running a conference. Yeah. And now here we are in Cincinnati with... How many people we got here? Um, about 250. 250? Mm-hmm. Third year of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference. That's right. Are we beginning? Yeah. Good a time as any. Okay. I mean, yeah, I don't do like a formal kind of open thing anyway. and just kind of... Because that always feels weird. Hmm. Bim has got a lot to answer for. <laughs> Hasn't he? He does. Actually, I gave him a present once. And just, um, and just when this is picking up, he goes and retires. I know. So, you know, I always give books as gifts. So mm -hmm. I gave him a book. I don't remember what book it was, but my card inside just basically said, it's all your fault. That seems entirely appropriate. That's all it said. It said, dear Jim, it's all your fault, Renee. <laughs> and he knew exactly, like I didn't even need to explain. He knew exactly what I was talking about. It's been a trip. It has. A long road. Where did it start for you? Well, it started with Jim Beerman. I was sent to a conference on the recruiting pipeline. So at the time I was the sergeant over school resource officers and the magnet school officers. 
and I was on maternity leave and I had a new lieutenant and a new captain and they said, well, we don't know anything about this stuff. And there's this conference about recruitment, you know, getting kids in early to become police officers. Okay. And while I was there, everybody made plans to go to dinner but I was gonna be late to dinner. So I actually asked a group of the people, I'm like, hey, cause you know how you make friends, new friends at a conference? Well, nobody makes friends at a conference like you do. Well, that's true. You kind of bounce around absolutely everybody. It's impressive. Yes, I, so I do, but I had already kind of like gotten a group. So I'm like, hey, save me a space at dinner cause I'm gonna come late. Well, well I ended up sitting next to Jim Bierman. So he had noticed that I was going to do a Fulbright over in the UK with the London Metropolitan Police Service. And this is why I do believe in like fate and the universe, because... Very zen. Yes. When I had applied for the Fulbright, I was not pregnant, but when I was accepted into the program, when I opened the letter to say that I was accepted into the program, it was a Friday, and I was basically going to be induced for labor on that very Monday. I thought we were heading for an immaculate conception kind of story at this point. I don't think I've met your kids. And <laughs> <laughs> well, they'd say maybe they were, you know, born by the devil's spawn, but no, I'm kidding. I love my children. <laughs> but I, I'm totally if, leaving that in in the edit. Yeah, do it. Yeah. Do it. I love my kids. <laughs> so I had to call the Fulbright Commission and say, hey, uh, I didn't have a baby when I applied and now I do. Do you mind if I go in January? So had I not been pregnant with a baby and gotten this Fulbright, I would have never met Jim. I would have actually been working with the London Metropolitan Police Service. So he found out I was doing the Fulbright and he said, hey, I have this friend named Larry Sherman who runs this program in Cambridge. How would you like Cambridge to be your host in institution? And I was like, hell yeah. I mean, like, who wouldn't want Cambridge attached to them? I think one or two people have heard of that university. Yeah, one or two. So he, like, just met me that night. And, like, we talked. And by the end of the night, he's like, yeah, I'll write a letter to my friend Larry and I'll get you over there. So while I did my Fulbright with the London Met, I took off two weeks in there. And I attended Larry Sherman's master's program at Cambridge that he's been running for a long time now, as you know, because you go over there and speak and teach and mentor the students. Uh, I wander around. It's mainly to go and have a drink in the Eagle. Right. Or the Granta. Mm -hmm. So I went over for the two weeks and just sat in on the courses. And I actually didn't really have a full understanding of like what the program was because I didn't go to the dinners and I didn't wear the Harry Potter gown. But I met Larry and I got a good understanding of evidence-based policing and like what it was. So I started reading everything on evidence-based policing and went back to work advocating for research, trying to find research partners. So this is a very long story, but Larry brought me down to ASC in 2010. So I spoke there and then they were like, yeah, there's all these other presentations. And I knew David Weisberg from talking to Jim. So I went to his session. And at the end of it, I approached David and David was, I was like, hi, you know, I'm Renee Mitchell. And he's like, I know who you are. And I'm like, how do you, he's like, I saw you present for Larry. There you go. See, that's the problem. Once you meet Larry, there's very few people can contract the exact moment they had, they committed sort of career suicide. <laughs> it's like, when you met Larry Sherman, uh -huh. you got sucked into the dark side. You should have taken the blue pill. I should have taken the blue pill. stayed in the matrix. I know. I, ignorance is bliss. However many months later, I became the sergeant of crime analysis. And so once I became the crime analysis sergeant, so I called David and I say, hey, I'm the crime analyst sergeant. What should I do? And so he says, what about doing a hotspot study? 
I said, well, that sounds like fun. So from my two weeks in Cambridge and kind of having a basic understanding, and I read a lot of research and randomized controlled trials, I ran my own study with the mentorship of David and Cynthia Lum and Chris Coper. Which became the Sacramento Hotspots experiment. Yes. It seems as if to make that happen, a lot of stars had to get in alignment we're never going to sustain American society of evidence-based policing or evidence-based policing generally if the requirements to get there are you have to meet Larry Sherman, you have to know <laughs> David Weisberg, you know, it's like take the two biggest names in the field on right. the planet and yeah, you have to be on first name terms with those guys, otherwise we can't get things going. We have to be able to move beyond that, but it's fascinating that that's what got you involved. Right. But how do we go from there to like a couple of years down the line, we're now, there's hundreds of people here in Cincinnati of all places for the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Well, that had to do with Jim Bierman also. So really, ultimately, like I said- He's to blame. He's to blame. So I was talking to two separate friends that were involved, like getting involved in learning about police research, and they would use me as their person to talk to, and they wanted to set up an appointment so we could talk once a month or every couple of weeks because they didn't have anybody else in their agency to really talk to about it. Which is a bitter indictment of 21st century policing, if you think about it. Yeah, because we should know what the research says. Or we should at least be able to discuss it and figure there's a few other folk around in our agency who want to talk about research right. and science and learning and moving the profession forward. Well, and I didn't even know it existed. So when I, and I prided myself on being a well-educated police officer. So I was surprised, and this is gonna sound maybe arrogant, but I was surprised that I didn't know any of this stuff. And that was 12 years into my career when I met Jim. So for me, I think there's lots of cops out there that have no idea that police research exists. Right, so you have more than a decade in the job, you figure your experience, you know what you're doing. Right. And then suddenly there's this whole world of research and evidence and knowledge that would say, no, we know whether that stuff works or not. Right. And why have I not been told that? And that's either an indictment of police training education or it's probably equally or worse an indictment of academia and our inability to reach out to practitioners. Right, which is what ASCBP is all about, is trying to bridge the, you know, the gap between the two. It was my two friends that I kind of got this sense of, like, if you're on the East Coast telling me that you don't have anybody to talk to and you're on the West Coast telling me you don't have anybody to talk to about research and policing and now you both want to use me as like your intellectual fulfillment once a month or whatever, then we should get together. I'm like, there's got to be more people. My one friend said, well, why don't you call Jim Bierman? Because Jim was now no longer the chief of Redlands. He'd become the president of the, of the now National Police Foundation. And Jim said, well, what about if you just start the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing? So I said, okay, I'll do that. There you go. There was your mistake. Yeah. Volunteering. You weren't even voluntold that volunteering to get involved in things is hugely important mm -hmm. because you can sit in the periphery or it might come to the conference but once you actually get deep into the weeds of this stuff right it opens a door and you just step into you know one of those men in black hole universes that opens up my analogy i use is uh it's like alice in wonderland you just go follow the white rabbit and that hole just further and further that you just spiral down into evidence-based policing and to me like the more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. And I think that's with the policing research, the more and more I learn about, you know, everything to do with what I see as police research, not just crime prevention research, but things like the critical incident stress debriefing research, research centering on leadership stuff. The more I read, the more I realize there's like a boatload of information that I don't know. And I'm always surprised because I'm, I think to myself, why isn't policing using any of it? 
there's so much research out there on so many different topics that we could pull into policing when it comes to, you know, mental health and wellness for police officers, about mental illness in the field, about homelessness. It's not just police research. There's other areas of research, psychology and sociology, even the medical field, that have done research that we should be applying. And I think it's also important to point out that it's not just about crime prevention either. Right. Well, even there's the critical incident stress debriefing, which most agencies use after an officer's experienced a critical incident. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that that's not the most effective tool, but we continue to use it. But I don't know that they know that information. So when I go teach about evidence-based policing and I bring up the research surrounding critical incident stress debriefing, most executive managers are really surprised. And then there's some difficulty because you have to let go of a long-standing tradition and practice right. in policing. And then what do you do with your cops? Well, and it also, I think, has additional concerns that probably make it even harder to adopt that, which is, as I understand, some of the approaches not just don't work, but can actually be detrimental. Right. And that's incredibly difficult because we all like to think in policing that we're well-meaning. Yes. You know, I can live with the fact that I may not be as effective as I hope I am. Mm -hmm but at least I'm not doing any harm. And now here's evidence that when an officer is at their most stressed and needs the most effective help and care, the critical incident stress debriefing literature is suggesting that some of this is actually harmful, isn't it? Right. And those are the things to me that like why I'm such an advocate for evidence-based policing is because when I started to reach out to academics in the, in the psychology field about CISD, there was quite a few of them that were like, you're still doing what? Like in one email I oh, got... I've, I've seen police stations that are still using carbon paper. Okay. <laughs> right. So the feel was like we debunked this in psychology like 10 years ago. And I know I'm also discussing something that, you know, research on the other side, they'll say, look at, here's all these research articles that have been written that support CISD. So there's a little bit of, I don't like the word controversy, but like the way you view the research. So I don't think it's solid on either side. So you need to have more research around policing. Because a lot of the proponents will argue that some of this research, research has not been done with policing groups. So it doesn't count because it's been done with like other civilians or people and shown to be ineffective or have a backfire effect. But those are humans. Correct. But that's... But that's good evidence to justify doing more experiments yes. and studies on policing rather than just discount it. Yes. Because you don't like the research by easily saying, well, it's not been done on police, therefore we can just carry on as we've been doing anyway. How does that happen? How is it that we can still be using something 10 years after it's pretty much been proven to be ineffective and possibly harmful? So I think there's two reasons. One, it's the piece that you talked about before. It's the whole reason our society exists is try to bridge that gap between academics and the practitioners. I think there's difficulty getting research to the actual cops because they don't, they don't have time. Like I, no. I've talked to my friends who are chiefs and I'm like, you know, what do you do all day? And how much time do you put in like we even started like how much time do you put in for, to crime prevention and they're like they just giggle because they're like well none renee i'm i'm busy running a business so if you think about the way policing structured like you get to certain tiers or ranks where they're running a business they're really not into the day-to-day -day. with hundreds of employees yes. and dynamic problems right yeah. so they're working on those problems on a day-to-day -day basis so if you come down the ranks where your people should be thinking or more proactively like working on those problems well they're putting out fires because most policing centers around okay what emergency just happened what big huge thing just hit our agency i have a friend of mine that calls it like the make it stop policing like just make it stop 
Like whatever that thing is that's happening to our police agency, just make it stop. Make it go away so I can deal with the right. next drama. And then they go on to the next thing. So as an industry, we're not really good at long-term planning. And we also have this belief system that to have good managers, we need to move them every two years. So we think that everybody needs to learn how to do a little bit of the whole entire police department to be an effective supervisor, manager, leader, whatever you want to call it. In Britain, they used to call those butterfly men because they, like a butterfly, they just flip from one thing to another without ever landing for too long. Well, we do this as part of our culture. It's not even like person's fault we move them and then they start relearning a new job in a new place with new people under them. So you never build like an expertise or the ability to know your job extremely well. Or we send them on a course and I worry sometimes when people go on a course and they come back and they were trained by somebody who used to be in the job and then this is now their retirement gig. Yes. But they, the last time they really read the literature was 20 years ago and they're just training on what they were trained on 20 years ago and decided to do that. Right. And so there's no incentive because people are still hiring them to demonstrate that they're up to date with the literature and up to date with the latest right. information. And also, if they're not actually within the academic environment, how the hell do you access this stuff? Because it's all behind paywalls yes. and it's journal articles and you need library access through a university and the universities are spending less money on library access now. Mm. And they're not buying as many of the journals as they used to. So this gap between the science and the practitioners, I don't know, I mean, things like ASCBP are great for shrinking it, but they're pushing against a universe that keeps expanding yeah. and pushing them further apart. Well, that's why one of the things we do is we write a research brief every two weeks. So we take an article, we try to find articles that we think are, will be important to policing. And then we have a couple writers that write a two-page brief from that article. And then we, we try to send it to at least one author that was on the original article for accuracy. Because we know that we're translating the research, so I, sometimes we might explain something a little too broad or a little too narrow. So the academics have always have been, so far, very generous. They'll just do like a track change for me, because I'm like, please don't explain to me what you want, just track change it. So you used to do the initial translation into what you think is appropriate, and then you get a bit of fine-tuning from the academic that was part of the original study. Yes. That sounds a great way to do things because there's not a lot of incentive for academics to do that and also there's not a lot of skills training for academics to understand how to do that. Academics on the whole are pretty awful at communicating with practitioners. Right. None of them are longer than two pages and then we have takeaways at the bottom and like I said the academics have been great with going back through and like track changing for us and it's always those adjustments that I find like either we spoke too broadly or too narrowly or we kind of didn't quite get the gist of like some little nuance in the research that they'll go in and they'll add a sentence. And just tweak it for yes. you. Yes. And so those come out every two weeks. But like I said, I go beyond just policing. So for example, when I said about the research and crime and everything else beyond policing, there's a doctor that I reach out to who I love. I'm probably going to butcher his name. It's Riedelmeier. And he is a researcher that works in the ER. So he's actually done a lot of research about what he sees in the ER. So one of his studies that kind of turned me onto his work was he did this concierge service for the homeless population. And he wanted to see if there was different treatment of the homeless population when they came in to visit the ER, if they would have different outcomes. So is this instead of just doing the absolute minimum because yes. you know that they can't afford the services, therefore the hospital, which is often paying for it directly, kind of says, give them the absolute minimum service. He's taking the opposite responses. No, let's actually treat this person 
with a more effective, fuller treatment and see if that actually reduces their return time to the yeah. hospital. Yeah. So, and that was the idea. And I think this is a lot of times when people make assumptions about our practices or our policies, they always think, well, this is best practice, which I did air quotes because I hate the term best practice because in policing it means I just went to another police agency, I saw what they did, now we're doing it here. It's not founded on anything. Or I have an opinion and I have so much rank that nobody's going to call me on it. That em eminence-based policing. Eminence-based policing, yes. So his was kind of the same idea is, here's our typical practice that we normally do. I wonder if there is a different way of treating them if we'd get different outcomes. So he did a randomized control trial. So half of them got their regular, like how they typically treat their um, homeless population, and half got this concierge service where somebody was assigned to them and kind of walked them through the process, like gave them something to eat, really listened to what was going on. The treatment group actually used less services over the next six months. I can't remember how long he ran the study, but they were less expensive. Because the assumption was, like most people, if you give them like better treatment, better service, then they'll come back more. But his study was really counterintuitive because it was, he felt, and like in the theory discussion section was, because we're meeting their needs and like we're really listening and caring for them, they don't need to come back as often. So now it's costing us less money. Well, it just goes to show with that homeless study that there isn't as much sort of moral consensus and received wisdom as we think there is. Mm -hmm. you know, everybody has an opinion of, oh, there's no way that'll work right. because the homeless will just come in and abuse that service. Right. And I think that's one of the problems that we run into in policing, which is that there's no point doing that because I just know <laughs> that is not going to work. Yes. You know, we've never done it before. There's nowhere that's done this new innovative idea, but I just know it's not going to work. So I would sooner be happy in my ignorance and my absolute confidence that I know it's not going to work than to actually for us to test this and see if it might. Which is, I'm laughing because I actually got into a shouting match. You? Yeah. No. <laughs> with, uh, with somebody of higher rank, and that's the exact conversation that we were having, is they were saying, I know this isn't going to work. And I was like, you don't know. I'm like, you don't know that. And he's like, yes, I do. This is what I've seen. I know that won't work. And I was like, all I'm asking is to test it. I'm like, because you don't know. I'm like, I'm not saying I know, because then, you know, I'm in the middle of this shouting match. So I was trying to get across, like, I'm not saying I know. I'm not saying I'm right. What I am saying is I want to test it. Yeah. And I actually think, like, my underlying, like, drive for all of this is I love winning. So, like, I want to do <laughs> experiments because I want to be able to say, look, I am empirically correct. I mean, if you know me, then now you've given me, like, a soapbox with data and research behind me to be like, I am correct, sir. A small reducing crime public service announcement for podcast listeners, getting into a shouting match with your supervisor is not necessarily a good career move. No, it's not, <laughs> but we had a really good relationship. So it was it was actually a fun shouting match because like they were- They're the best ones. Yeah, he wasn't mad at all. It was more like this, you know, I'm not listening. And I'm like, you will listen to me. He's like, I'm not gonna listen to you. I'm like, you have to listen to me. So it was, like a really good, loud debate. Oh, but what's really cool about that is that if you can actually get into these kinds of debates with people, you can see where they're, they're you at least get a chance to see their perspective of where they're coming from, mm -hmm. which is a starting point to getting stuff done, right? right? Because we do struggle to get experiments, to get research up and running in policing. Right. And I think it's a lot of the times because we don't 
really appreciate the perceived risks or the perceived positions of so many of the stakeholders who are necessary to make it work because right. people don't necessarily step out on a limb and actually say I'm absolutely authorizing all of this right you know we've got to write 27 pieces of paper and send it through the chain of command up and down 20 times yeah. before we get anything approved if you compare like evidence-based policing to evidence-based medicine and for the people that don't know that's where Larry Sherman took the model and and translate it into evidence-based policing. Except for, of course, they have about a hundred years head start on us. Exactly. But if you look at their, like where they started with their RCTs and their research, my understanding, once I'm a doctor, but not you just that. play You just play one on television. Yeah, not that kind of doctor. You're not the useful kind. I'm not the useful kind. <laughs> I'm just the kind that like argues with you about everything is they talk about how like medicine wasn't really listening either. So the doctors were to me a lot like our cops. You know, a lot of them are practitioners. They're doing the surgeries, they're doing the therapies, they're doing the interventions. Evidence-based medicine to them is the same as evidence-based policing. It's usually a researcher who's telling them, here's best practice or the best antibiotic or the best medicine. So it's not them willingly taking on that evidence-based medicine. Well, and Jeff Barnes, in an earlier episode of this podcast, was articulating it saying, you know, the researchers are saying, hey, we don't know what will work, so we'd like to try a couple of things. But what the practitioners are often hearing is, we think what you, how you're doing it is wrong. Right. We haven't had our pivotal experiment. So medicine had the CAST experiment, which was the cardiac arrest stress trial. And their logic was, which I think is great logic, most people aren't killed by their first heart attack, they're killed by the arrhythmia after the heart attack. So they thought, okay, if they're killed by arrhythmias, and we know that there's medicine that helps arrhythmias, well, why don't we give our heart attack victims this arrhythmia med medicine right after their heart attack? Because now they won't have those arrhythmias and they won't die. Has a perfectly logical mechanism. Right, totally logical. And I'm sure there were lots of people who were saying, absolutely, we, just, we should just do this. We know this works. We know this works, exactly. So that's where medicine was at. And they finally did an RCT on it. So there was a control group that got nothing and the other three groups got different arrhythmia medications. They actually came to a halt after six months of running the study because they realized they were killing off the treatment group at a greater rate, at such a high rate that they said, oh my God, we can't ethically run the study anymore. It was so great that they thought, holy shit, we can't do this anymore. Absolutely contrary to everybody's expectations. Right. So that was their pivotal study to get more doctors on board with evidence-based medicine because it sounded, just like you said, it sounded so logical, it made so much sense, and so many doctors were like, we know this works, why would we test it? So when they had that result, it, it was their wake-up call. So I feel like in policing, because we're behind historically in the decades of research we have, we just haven't hit our CAS study yet. But that hasn't happened with the Kansas City Preventative Patrol Experiment in 1979? No. And maybe that's the issue, is that for your average cop, as you are, well, you're not average, <laughs> but, but I certainly was, I was a slightly below average cop as I was, this is not ingrained in what you learn at the academy. Mm -mm. There's no ongoing year-on-year -year professional development where it's expected that you're updated on evidence-based policing practices. Mm -mm. It's just still focused on some first aid, can you shoot straight and don't get the department sued, so here's your obligatory class on legal updates. Right. And that seems to be a stumbling block for moving policing forward because it still doesn't feel like we're a learning profession. No, and we're, and we're not. I would say we probably spend more money on leadership classes across the board, across the whole entire country than we do on understanding like crime and why crime works. 
I mean, any of the sociological issues that policing deal with, we don't learn about it. And I don't mean training. I always, you know, cite Ed Flynn about how the answer to every sociological problem is police training. I mean what you say, like, about, like, what we're taught. We don't have a really good understanding of, like, that crime concentrates, right? We don't understand regression to the mean and how, how crime fluctuates. You get a lot of noise within your signal because you get so much variance in crime from a week-to-week -week basis, but we still all do CompStat from a week-to-week -week basis. So we don't have these fundamental understandings of like how it all works. So I think it's flawed in the way we teach because we just teach you, just like you said, the way you were trained too, it's do you know these laws? Do you know like how to be safe? Do you know how not to kill anybody with your car? And then do you know how to shoot well enough that we could put you on the street? A lot of those things center around what you mentioned was liability. But I wonder as we learn more about police research and evidence-based policing, there's gonna be a day where somebody's gonna sue because a police department didn't engage in an evidence-based practice. Yes. Because I think it's going to be an ethical issue and you know, spending taxpayers' monies and all these things that we are responsible for as police departments, where if you have outdated policies or outdated practices, that somebody someday is gonna say, hey, you engaged in this thing, you caused some harm, and there's actually research that shows you should have never been doing that in the first place. Or it will drive research that will help inform those practices. Or that. I chatted to Rob Brina about one of the challenges is how much insurance companies have helped move some fields forward. Oh, yeah. Because the insurance companies want to make sure that these fields are engaging in good practice. I don't think there's a best practice, but there's always better practice. Mm -hmm. But you know, so many cities insure themselves. So there isn't some overarching insurance company or agency who's going, you know what, it's in our financial interests which drive so much of what's taking place. Right. Pilots spend a lot of time flying. They don't spend a huge amount of training after their initial training. They go for a current training, but they are a very safe business because good practice is instigated into updated checklists. Right, because I love a tool, Gwande's book, like Checklist Manifesto. It's a great book. It's a great book. And I think about like how many things we should be doing that we should have checklists for in policing, you know, to really understand like why we do what we do. My other favorite book is Matthew Saeed's um, Black Box Black Thinking. Black Box Thinking, yep. Because I like how he talks about the aviation industry and how they improved over 30 years because they're not pointing fingers. They're doing like the root cause analysis. And the nice thing about the blame side is, uh, as you, so you know I'm a pilot in my uh, spare time. Even to this day in the aviation industry as a general aviation pilot flying a four-seater with a single big fan at the front that propels me slowly through the air. If I make a mistake, if I bust controlled airspace, or if I make a mistake, or if I turn onto a runway before I have permission and, and make a, a, a genuine error, most of the time I can report that to the Federal Aviation Administration through a website at NASA hmm. because they document errors to see where the problems are in the system. And but if I report it, in most cases that precludes then them prosecuting me for it. What it does is it encourages people to report errors and it allows the system to learn where right. the flaws and the weaknesses are. 
And we almost have the reverse. We have systems in policing that are designed to resist learning from mistakes. Right. Like, and they talk about policing all the time that will circle the wagons, you know, when we get criticized or whatever. To me, it's because the way the whole system's built that you do, you get this blame game. So everybody locks down. So nobody's really looking at how do we learn from this holistically? Like if we approached it like the FAA and went into every officer involved shooting and had like a federal agency that went in to just examine the root cause analysis, like why this occurred, you know, if somebody intended to harm somebody, okay, that's different. Then you then you do point blame. You're basically like, you're a bad apple. If somebody did And there are a few in policing. Uh, right. But if it's unintentional, like you said, like you make an honest mistake. Split second decision making. Right. Then you don't shift to blame, you shift to what is it organizationally? What is it in police culture? What is it in the training? Like, what are the mechanisms that set this up for a failure in a sense? But we don't have anything that really gathers the data. I know, you know, the Washington Post wants all officer involved shootings. You're just gathering statistics that don't really give you a lot of information about how to fix a system that is fundamentally going to every year shoot a certain amount of people. Mm -hmm. It just is. And not just shooting, but we seem to have be running at around a thousand people killed a year by police officers in the United States. Right. Most of which seem to be you know, lawful shoots. Right. They're the lawful but awful. But there are going to be a small subset of those that are optimal for being designed out of the system if we could look at it in a critical way that wasn't blame oriented but was learning oriented. Right. No, and I think like if we shifted to a whole learning oriented, because even the way we do, you know, field training, um, it's not really like a learning environment. It's, it's an experience environment. Yes, and it um, it changes by your FTO. You know, we might have an FTO that's very good at explaining things and very good at getting people up to speed. You might have an FTO that shouts at you all the time, and that's their mode of trying to get you to learn. And we also don't know with field training officers how to identify good ones. Mm -mm. We have no knowledge or science on what makes a good field training officer. Well, and a lot of it we go on like intuition. Like if you were a good cop, and then you've got to look at, okay, what's your definition of a good cop? So are you proactive out in the field? Nowadays it might be how much community engagement are you doing? So are you reading to second graders, you know, during one shift during your week? Or are you stopping at your businesses to shake hands? All of those things, doesn't necessarily make a good training officer. I've heard it before, like with the, you know, coaching in the NFL. A lot of times, you know, you have somebody switch from being a player to a coach and there's failures there because they don't know how to switch from, I'm in the game and I'm playing the game and I'm a really good quarterback to now I have to take people and coach them and teach them how to do things better. It's a total different skill set. People who are good at rowing as opposed to people who are good at steering. Right. So I think that shows the value of something like the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing. Mm -hmm. Because just in terms of the topics that we've covered during the course of this chat, yeah. the whole wealth of areas that are open to being discussed and to being evaluated. What advice have you got for police officers who want to know a little bit more about it? Other than, of course, joining the American Society well, of yes. Evidence-Based Policing, and there's a website that people can go along and sign up to, and it costs next to nothing. A year's membership that gets you all of this for... $40 a year. Bargain. We're cheap. Absolutely, and who was the very first member of the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing? That would be Police? Dr. Jerry Ratcliffe. Membership number one, yep. That's right. <laughs> we were gonna make you a t-shirt. One of these days we will. <laughs> Put a number one on your back. So, um, I Sign up, everybody. But 
There's somebody listening to this that want to do more, they want to learn more, they've got an area of interest. So I think you just need to reach out to your academics and like know who's in the field. So like the American Society of Criminology, you know, has their whole list of all the academics that are there. I think- But it's I, only a subset of those are actually useful for a police department. True. So what a I lot was, of oxygen thieves out there stealing it from other people who could use it better, and especially in criminology. So- And I'm bagging on criminologists, but I think what you're really talking about, aren't you, is the subset of finding policing researchers. Yes because they tend to be more practically oriented, yes. as well as have research skills that are geared towards understanding the policing environment right. more than the just broad criminology, right? Right, well, and it's field research. So like in one of our discussions we had in the panel, you know, I talked about that you gotta roll with the punches because field research in policing doesn't mean you're locked into this exact science and you have to do it this very specific way. Like we- You, you have to be realistic. Yes. As General Von Mulkey said, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So very few studies are ever ever going to end up in the top tier journals to be perfect. But let's do a study that at least tells us something, even if it only gets published in the Bangladeshi Journal of Sheep Stealing and Criminology. So I think like if you're just starting into this one, you have to do some reading. I wouldn't want somebody to just jump in and be like, I'm going to do a randomized controlled trial. And this sounds super easy. You actually have to read like some of the, the literature that's out there. So like Larry's, I always recommend Larry's first article of what works, what doesn't, what, you know, what looks promising. You know, Larry Sherman's article. Larry Sherman's yep. article. And then there's a couple books on evidence-based policing, your reducing crime book. There's books that could kind of give you an idea of what evidence-based policing is. And then from there, you really just got to start with like, well, what are my issues in my police organization? And then reaching out to the police researchers, because that is the, the other thing. There's a lot of new researchers in the field. If you have a local university and you have somebody that's in the criminal justice or the criminology department, you can reach out to them to say, hey, I have this issue. I need you to make sure my design's good. I need you to make sure that it's analyzed correctly. And then you could have, you could publish on this. Yeah, it's a very good relationship because you get the academic rigor within policing and that external validity to some degree of having somebody come in from the outside and say, no, this is, you've done this well, this is good science. And the academic researcher gets their article in the Bangladeshi right. Journal of Sheep Stealing and Criminology. And we don't want to abuse the academics either because we don't want them just that oh, expectation. They're fine with that. Don't worry about it. Well, I don't want the expectation of like every academic's just going to work for free for a police department for a journal article. So to, to me, it's like a give and take. You have people that will, over the course of my career, have helped me with my research without, you know, our department like paying them for their time and they're getting the journal articles out of it. But to me, like the reciprocal part of that is, is you try to find grant funding so that way you can pay your academic, you know. Or, that or you, at least just start a relationship and see where it takes you right. in terms of how much you can both commit to doing these kind of projects. And maybe one day turn up and give a co-presentation a co because this is one of the few conferences where you have practitioners and academics presenting together right. on what they've done together, which I think is one of the really special things about the societies of evidence-based policing. You've got them in Australia and New Zealand and the UK, here in the United States Canada. and Canada. So you've got these societies all over the place with new ones cropping up as well. So maybe that's a good way to wrap this up with the advice being get interested, think about different questions in policing, think about joining your local society of evidence-based policing in whatever country you're in, and start engaging with other people so you're not alone in your agency, but there are other people out there, police practitioners, police officers, 
researchers who are interested in policing, all working together, all trying to advance the science, the knowledge, the business, and to some degree the craft of policing. And uh, Renee, I think we owe you a bit of a debt of gratitude here in the US <laughs> for, for spearheading this and doing all the damn admin. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That was episode 13 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Cincinnati in May of 2019. You can find more episodes like this at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck.